That song's a great tie-in to the passage we're going to look at this morning, which is Exodus 15. So if you have a Bible, take it out. Find Exodus 15. Last week we looked at Exodus 14, which is the incredible event of the Hebrews passing through the Red Sea and God parting the sea and then drowning the Egyptians behind them. This week we look at an incredible song that looks back on that incredible event. And the first thing I want you to see in your notes is this, Exodus 15, 1 to 18, the first part of the chapter, is the first worship song in the Bible. And I put worship in parentheses for a reason. As I studied this week, I kept reading in commentaries, this is the first song in the Bible period. Not just worship song, but the first song in the Bible. And in my brain, I have no idea where I picked this up, but I have always thought in my brain, "Uh uh-oh, somebody's got an alarm going off. Silence it. Sounds like a balcony person. Maybe. Amber alerts. Everybody silence your amber alerts. I'll wait for you. Okay. We good? I was in a church service one time, and we had a guest speaker who was in Oklahoma, We had Dr. Whitlock, who's the president of OBU, and he was preaching, and it was in our second service, which was tended to be our older group uh, at First Baptist Kingfisher, and somebody's phone started ringing, and it kept ringing, and it kept ringing, and he ignored it for about four or five rings, and then finally he said, that's got to be an old person, because they don't know how to shut their phone off. (laughs) I I would never say anything like that to you guys, never, never, never. So anyways, Exodus 15, Exodus 15, is it, a, is it the first song in the Bible or is it not? In my brain, somewhere along the way, I picked up that Genesis 4, where a rotten dude named Lamech says some really rotten things about how tough he is and how many wives he has, I have always had in my brain that that's the first song in the Bible. In fact, I've read in a book somewhere that that was the origination of gangster rap, was Lamech in Genesis 4 talking about all the wives he had and how he was going to kill all these people and on and on and on. So you can flip a coin, I guess, uh, whether you want to say Lamech sang the first song in the Bible. To be fair, I went back and looked this week. It doesn't say that he sang it. It says that he said it, but it certainly looks poetic. Uh, Either way, Exodus 15 is definitely the first worship song in the Bible. It's the first song that maybe would get some airtime on Caleb, let's put it that way. And there's no title given to the song. There's no name given to it in the text. But scholars refer to it a couple of different ways. Sometimes they call it the Song of Moses. Your Bible, in fact, may have that as the section heading. That's what the ESV says. This is the Song of Moses. That's added in later, obviously. Other Bible Bible commentators call it the Song by the Sea because it was sung right there by the Red Sea as they turned around and they saw the Egyptians drowned. One interesting thing that I had never really thought about, one Bible commentator I read this week suggested that this might have been the first part of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first part of the Torah that was actually written down. And that would kind of make sense if you think that God gave Moses the law, the Torah, at Mount Sinai, 
Possibly Moses wrote this down before they got to Sinai. As soon as they crossed the Red Sea, this could be the very first part of Scripture that was ever written down. So you can take that or you can leave it. Either way, we're dealing with the song. And there's some interesting structural things. I just want you to see here. Some of you may be bored by these details, but it's interesting to see how the text fits together week to week when we just take snapshots on a Sunday morning. Exodus 14 and 15 are summarized by Exodus 15, 19 to 20, and 15, 21. And what I mean is this. Exodus 14, verse 1 to 31, tells the story of crossing the Red Sea. It's in full version. This is how they crossed, and this is what God did. Then the song, Song of Moses, Song by the Sea, Exodus 15, 1 to 18, sings about it. Okay? It's the long version song, the unedited release version. They don't play it on the radio, but this is the whole thing. Then you come back at the end of 15, and 15, 19 to 20 is like the the condensed version of the Red Sea. You just read about it, but now they give you a two-verse summary of what happened. And then Miriam steps up with the ladies, and they sing, at least what we know they sing, is just this short version of the same song. So you have the whole story and the whole song, and then you have a shortened story and a shortened song in the passage that we're looking at this morning. And then the tail end of our passage is going to lead into the next two weeks of what we talk about. Exodus 15, 22 to 27 describes a, what you might call a pretest that will be repeated in Exodus 16 and 17. So I don't want to steal my thunder too much for the next couple of Sundays this morning, but I'm just giving you a heads up. The test that they face as soon as they cross out of the Red Sea into safety is about to be repeated in Exodus 16 and then in Exodus 17. The big idea of our passage, I think, is very simple when you add all of these verses together and you you look at them as a whole. Here's the big idea. Worship must be more than an event for God's people. It has to be more than an event. And the problem for the Hebrews, at least at this point in their history, is it was only an event. Okay? So last week, I know it's been a long week, but last week, we made mention of Exodus 12. That's the night of the Passover, Exodus 12, 27 to 28. And on the night of the Passover, the people gather together and they worship. The text says that. They worship God. But then, three days later, they find themselves on the shore of the Red Sea and they just completely melt down. Like there was no carryover from that event of worship into their everyday life. And what you see here is about to be repeated again. They make it through the Red Sea, and they're going to stop and they're going to worship, but it was just an event to them. It was just something they did. They just walked into a room, you could say, and sang a bunch of songs and filled in all the blanks, but then they walked out as if nothing had ever happened. And they completely melt down as soon as they get out into the wilderness. And the problem is that these were people who were worshiping. The text is telling us that. Right after the Passover, they worshiped. Right after the Red Sea, they worshiped. But it was just an event. It was just something that happened, and it didn't have any carryover into everyday life. And regularly, on Sunday mornings, we've talked about the idea that worship isn't just a song that you sing in this room when the band's on the stage, but worship is anything you do, anything you say, anything you think, or anything you feel in your heart that brings glory to God. That should be true of every minute, of every second, of every hour, of every day, of whatever, of your life. It can't just be an event. It can't just be something you come to and participate in and then you check out and move on. And the problem for the people is 
While we give them credit for worshiping, it's just an event, and it's not translating into their lives. So let's read the text, Exodus 15, 1 to 27, and then we'll jump in and try to make sense of what we see here. You follow along, Exodus 15, 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went to the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord 
your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom. Give us insight. Father, help us to see what we ought to emulate in these people. Help us to see the mistakes that we ought to avoid that they made. Father, give us hearts that are committed to worship, not just in this room, not just on Sundays, not just at 1030 uh, on this day, but, Father, throughout our lives. We want to be people who live lives of worship. We want to make the connection from what we do in this room into everyday life. Father, ultimately, we want to see you in this passage. We want to see truth about the gospel, about who Jesus is, and about what you've done to save us, what you've done to make us your people. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a week ago, Sunday, something happened in my house that almost never, ever, ever happens. And what happened is Sunday evening, my wife showed a small glimmer of interest in a football game on TV. (laughs) Almost never happens. Sports are not her thing. She could care less. She doesn't get excited about it. I was screaming last night when the Jayhawks came back and beat the Baylor Bears. I was so excited, and she was just not excited. She couldn't care less. But last Sunday night, I was watching two teams that I really could not care less about. It was the Vikings and the Saints, and it was this great game back and forth. It was exciting down the end, and uh, some of you watched it. This was the last play of the game And, uh, you know, he drops back to pass, eight seconds left, he throws up a prayer, and the guy guy misses him, and he runs in, and all week long I've been wondering what happened to to, uh, Diggs' helmet. He takes it off and he throws it. I don't know what happened to it, but it's gone, and everyone celebrates, and they're excited, and the play happens, and we're watching it live, and I guess my yelling was enough when the play went on, to get her attention and to actually look at the replay. She wasn't paying attention the first time, I don't think, but she saw the replay, and, you know, really, I get nothing from my wife when it comes to sports and excitement, but she watched that play, and this was her reaction. You ready? Wow. (laughs) Pretty good. Uh, Probably the most I've seen her get excited about sports. And uh, if you watch the game, you know... The Vikings, I mean, they went crazy. They had this big dog pile in the end zone, and they were doing their silly little clap up above their heads and yelling. And, I mean, people just, you didn't have to tell them to get excited. Like, they just did it. They saw something amazing, and they were compelled, without being told or forced or coerced, to respond audibly and visibly and physically in some way. You understand that's worship. And I'm not trying to say all the people at the football game are are worshiping football players or touchdowns. That's not my point. My point is worship is when you see the truth about who God is and you understand something great about what he's done, you're just moved to express it in some way. To take it out of the the realm of sports, it's like if you take a trip to the Grand Canyon or last week I mentioned Niagara Falls or you go to downtown Manhattan or you go to see the, the giant sequoias in California. You go to something like this that just takes your breath away. You don't just sort of go in and look around and say, eh, well, there you go, okay, saw it. Like you stop 
and you just look at it and your jaw drops down and you say, that's amazing. That's unbelievable. Look at how big it is. Look at how tall they are. And I'm not saying that you're worshiping trees or the Grand Canyon or buildings or any of that. What I'm saying to you is it's just a natural response when you see something that's great and something that's amazing. That's the first thing I want you to see about this passage, and it's about worship. What does Exodus 15 teach us about worship? Worship is a natural response to who God is and what he's done to save his people. Look, if I can, as a preacher, just get you to see who God is and understand what he's done to save you, I don't have to ask you to be people who worship. It's just going to happen. And in your life, if you're bored with worship, either in this room or out of this room, I'm going to tell you that the problem is you're not seeing clearly who God is and what he's done to save you. The problem is not with God. The problem is with your understanding or seeing who he is and what he's done to save you. It's a natural response to who God is and what he's done to save his people. I gave you a few examples here. We won't read them, but I just want to mention in Job, the Bible says that as God is creating everything in the beginning, the sons of God, which is a term for the angelic host, are there with God and they're watching and they're like cheering God on. They're seeing him do something so amazing, they just can't help but have this natural response but to worship. You see the same idea in Revelation 15. In Revelation 15, you have a group of believers who have died. They've lost their lives in the tribulation at the end. It's this picture of what's going to happen. And as they stand before God in the presence of God in heaven, they're just praising God. And it's fascinating. As John wrote down this vision of what he's seeing, he's, get, he's got this glimpse of the end, these people who have died in the tribulation praising God. He says, they sang the song of Moses. And the song of the Lamb. Where did he get that from? Well, John had read the Old Testament. And he knew. That's just what the people did when they walked through the Red Sea. It was a natural response when they caught a glimpse of who God was. And what he had done to save his people. That they responded in praise. And they responded in worship. Now there's a couple things about worship. Let's qualify it. And look at the text and pull some of these things out. Number one. True worship is God-centered. If it's not God-centered, it's not worship at all. Worship has to be God-centered. So much of modern worship, and I'm not only talking about songs we sing in big church, but I'm including that. So much of modern worship in modern church is man-centered. So we sing songs about us or we write blogs about us, or we read books and write books about us. We go to conferences that are all about us, not about God and who He is. True worship is always God-centered. And let me just point out a couple of things in the text. You may have noticed these as we read through the first part of Exodus 15. Verse 5, excuse me, verse 1 to 5, if you look, is actually sung about God singing about who he is. And then there's a shift. The next 12 verses are actually sung directly to God. All the pronouns change. So we start off, we're singing about who he is, this is who who God is, and then there's this shift, and we're singing directly to him, and then the very last verse comes back, and again, it's about God. Look at verse 1. We're singing to the Lord, we're singing to Yahweh, that begins the whole song, and look how it ends in verse 18. The Lord, Yahweh, will reign forever and ever. We've got bookends focusing on who God is. In these verses, 
18 verses, 35 times the text here mentions God, either by God or the Lord Yahweh or a pronoun referring to God. 35 times in 18 verses we're talking about God. That's twice a verse, just over and over and over. We're focusing on God. The attributes of God you find in this passage, His holiness, His love, His wrath, His glory, His power, His eternity, His supremacy. And we could go on and on. The point is that true worship is focused on God. Who is he and what has he done to save his people? Second, true worship is rooted in the past and it's oriented to the future. It's rooted in in the past and it's oriented to the future. And this song includes both. This is what God did in the past. This is what he's going to do for us in the future. And that doesn't mean every song or book or blog or conference or whatever has to explicitly spell all those out, but it means in your heart as a, pers- a person who worships, your faith and your worship has to be rooted in what God has done in the past. What has he done to save you through Jesus Christ? And then it's got to be oriented to the future, meaning it's not just that God's done things for me in the past, but that he's also going to come through in the future. And the Hebrews couldn't connect these dots. They just struggled to connect it, right? They sing the song and they say all the stuff. This is what God has done. This is what he did. He saved us. And they sing it with Moses and Miriam. And then they get out in the wilderness and they just suddenly think, well, he's obviously going to kill us now. They didn't connect the two. Worship was this event and it was nice when it happened and it stopped. But true worship is rooted in the past and it's oriented to the future saying, look, this is who God is and was and always will be. This is what he's promised to do for his people. Therefore, as I look to the future, I have faith that he's going to come through on his word. He will not fail to keep his word. Rooted in the past, oriented to the future. Last, true worship is personal. It's personal. I just want you to look at Exodus 15.2. I just want you to understand this is not some sort of abstract rote, ritual, ceremonial thing that they're just going through. They're not just going through the motions here, at least if they're singing it with their heart and their mind. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. All of that is very personal. And it ought to be the the case in your life. It ought to be true in our lives. That worship, when we do it in this room and when we do it outside of this room, it's not just sort of a, a going through the motions of church stuff, but it's something that is true for us. It's something that's real to us. That you can insert those pronouns, my, my, my. He is my God. He is my Savior. He is my hope. He's my deliverer. All those words you can fill in when worship becomes personal. So that's a little bit about worship. In the flow of this story, the people have this worship experience, and they immediately go out, and they face a test. What does Exodus 15 teach us about testing? It teaches us that God regularly tests his people after they experience his power and his grace. You see this throughout the scriptures. When God's people have an experience of his power and his grace in a a unique way, almost always there follows some sort of testing to that. And I'll give you a couple of examples here. I I gave you a verse in 2 Chronicles. 
And I'm thinking here about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the good kings of Judah. He was a man who experienced God's power and his grace in amazing ways. He was, at one point, facing an army marching against his city that he would never be able to defeat. And he cries out to the Lord, and he prays that God would save him. And it's an amazing story if you've never read it. God comes through in a miraculous way, and he saves Hezekiah. And it's all good, but then a little while later, he gets sick. And he's about to die. He's on his deathbed, essentially. And he cries out to God, and he says, God, don't kill me now. I'm I'm not ready. And God comes through in his power and his grace again, and he says, I'm going to give you 15 more years. He's experienced God's power and his grace in amazing ways. And then the Bible says that God put him to the test to see what was in his heart. And he sends this envoy from Babylon. The Lord, God, sends the envoy from Babylon. And the envoy shows up in Jerusalem and they look at Hezekiah and they say, hey, we're hearing some crazy things. Like we're hearing that you, you guys took out that whole army of Assyrians and uh, we're hearing that you were almost dead and then you recovered. What gives? And Hezekiah says, let me show you my palace. Let me show you the, the treasury of the kingdom. Let me show you how big my walls are. Let me show you how great my army is. All my soldiers and chariots and cavalry. Let me show you all these things. You know what the text says he didn't show them? It's the Lord. The temple. And he failed the test. He experienced God's power and his grace in an amazing way. And God puts him to the test. And he fails miserably. You see a similar pattern jumping forward to the New Testament with Jesus. Jesus comes out to John the Baptist who's baptizing people, and he he says to John, I want you to baptize me. And you remember the back and forth. I'm not worthy to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. So he's baptized, and the text tells us when he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit of God, somehow in visible form, comes down and ascends or descends onto Jesus. And God the Father, you've got God the Spirit coming down on God the Son who's baptized, and you've got God the, the Father speaking in this audible voice, and he says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. He's just experienced the power and the grace of God in his life, this affirmation of who he is and what his mission is. And the text says what? Immediately, he was driven into the wilderness. In God's perspective, it was a time of testing. In Satan's perspective, it was a time of tempting. God intends it to establish Jesus in his identity and his mission. The devil intends it to destroy Jesus in his mission and his identity. And the pattern is the same throughout the scriptures. God's people have this great experience of his power and his grace. You better get ready because the test is going to come. New Christians experience this. I don't know if you've ever seen a new Christian sort of walk through the early stages of becoming a follower of Jesus. They experience a testing. And sometimes new Christians, we don't do a good job of warning them maybe. They sort of get a a week or two or a month or two into it and they say, what in the world? I got baptized and saved and I thought everything was going to be great from now. My life's falling apart. Well, that's the same thing that happened to the people in in the book of Exodus. And that's the same thing that happened to Hezekiah. And that's the same thing that Jesus experienced. Some of our youth just went to, uh, to winter retreat. Last weekend, 
Those of you who went to Winter Retreat, I heard it was a great time, and you heard some great uh, preaching, and you had some great worship and great fellowship and all that stuff. And some of you youth on that trip, you made a commitment or you made a promise or you made a sort of a renewal of your faith. And then you went to school this week and you thought, what in the world is happening? And you've already failed the test. Some of you haven't failed it yet, but you're wondering, what is going on? Why is it so hard? Why is this happening? And that's the picture throughout, uh, throughout the Scriptures. God's people experience His power and His grace, and then God tests His people. And the text says that in Exodus 15. Moses took them three days out into the wilderness, and it says in verse 25, the Lord made a statute and a rule, and there He tested them. And their response to the test was what? Grumbling. Grumbling. They respond with grumbling. What did these people know when they started grumbling about God out in the wilderness? They don't have any water. And I guess we should be fair to them and say, if you're in the desert with your kids and your livestock and you don't have any water, that's a, that's a real test. That's not lightweight stuff. That's serious. That's life and death. What did those people know? out there grumbling in the wilderness to Moses. They knew at least two things. Number one, they knew that the Lord could do the impossible. He could take impossible situations and he could come through. And number two, they knew that God had led them where they were because the text doesn't explicitly tell us here, but it's been telling us all the way through that they're following a pillar of fire and cloud as they travel, meaning they know that the Lord is the one leading them. They're following God exactly where he wants them to be. They know that he can do the impossible. A need arises, and they're facing this test, and their response is grumbling. Grumbling, this is in your notes, is evidence of forgetfulness, ungratefulness, self-centeredness, and immaturity. Evidence of forgetfulness, ungratefulness, self-centeredness, and immaturity. That's grumbling. And can we just be honest for a minute? Grumbling is something that's really easy to detect in other people while making excuses for in our own lives. It's easy for you to look at somebody else and say, can you believe they're such a grumbler? I mean, have you ever been around somebody that just grumbles and whines so much? Have you ever seen anything like it? And then to turn around and say, you will not believe what happened to me today. Let me tell you about how terrible it was. And look, this is hard for us because we live in an instant gratification culture. Instant. We want it five minutes ago. And we live in a culture that has invented something called social media so that we can take our grumbling and it's not just for the people who are standing around us, but it's for the whole world to hear. Can you imagine what would be trending on Twitter if the people of Israel had Twitter? We're going to die, trending on Twitter. There are no graves in Egypt, trending on Twitter. Like We feel this need to take our grumbling and to just amplify our sin, if we can just be straight about it, and broadcast it, not just to the people standing around us, but to the entire world, so that everyone knows how terrible my service was at the restaurant. Everyone needs to know that. 
Everyone needs to know how horrible this person on the phone was when they spoke to me. And we just take our grumbling and we broadcast it. And I don't care what the situation is. I don't care if it's me doing it or you doing it. Grumbling is evidence of forgetfulness, ungratefulness, self-centeredness, and immaturity. When you face a test, you need to remember that, and you also need to remember this. God can provide miraculously or providentially. Miraculously or providentially. Think about Moses with these people and their grumbling. They're at Mara, which they named Mara. It's a Hebrew word that means bitter. They named it that because the water there was bitter. They've been walking for three days. They have no water. They have nothing to drink. Their canteens or their skins or their whatever are run dry, and they're thirsty. And they don't see any water, and they finally find some water, and when they get up upon it, it's bitter. Maybe it's salty or it's undrinkable. So they named the place bitterness. This is terrible. And God tells Moses, of all the things that God could have done in this situation, he says, there's a log Throw it in, and the water will be sweet. I actually read some commentators this week who said the kind of wood or bush or brush that he threw in had some sort of aromatic quality or property that actually turns the water sweet. And I just thought, have you lost your mind? It's undrinkable water, and he throws in a piece of wood, and they can drink it. It's a miracle. He provides for them miraculously. In fact, I think he picks a way to provide for them where no one can even say, well, it was just a coincidence. Like He threw a tree trunk in, and all of a sudden they can drink the water. So he can provide miraculously. But how does the story end? The story ends where they drink the water, everybody's happy again, they march off again, and they go to a place named Elim. In Elim, there's all these nice palm trees, there's 12 springs of water, everybody has enough to drink. And God has provided for them. Moses didn't show up at Elim and start chucking logs in the water. It was just provided. They didn't need a miracle in that situation. Listen, when you face a test, one of the things you need to remind yourself is grumbling is a bad deal. And I'm going to have to watch myself. But you also need to remind yourself, God can provide for me in this situation miraculously, or he can provide for me providentially in a non-miraculous way. So if we're talking about finances and you're facing a test, you need to remind yourself that if God wants to, he can burden your Uncle Jimmy up in New Hampshire to get out his checkbook and send you a check for the exact amount of money you need and it shows up in your mailbox on the exact day you need it. I mean, I've talked to people who have told me, some of you have told me you've experienced something like that. God can do that. Or, God might give you a job. That may be how he provides. Or, God may teach you that you don't need as much as you think you need. But he'll provide, miraculously, providentially. You may be facing a test that's health-related. And you just got to stop and you got to say, okay, grumbling. I've got to check my heart for grumbling and I've got to remind myself God can provide miraculously or providentially. He may just say the word, snap his fingers, so to speak, and the same God with the same powerful hand that part the sea in half could just heal you. That may happen. 
Or God might give you a good doctor and a prescription that works. Or he may teach you that he will be faithful to you and to his promises even if you end up walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But he'll provide, maybe miraculously, maybe providentially, he'll provide for his people. You've got to make this connection in your heart between what God has done in the past and who he has always been, who he always will be in the future, and that he will come through on his word. You've got to connect that faith and worship that's rooted in the past but oriented to the future. It may be sin in your life. That may be the test that you're dealing with, some sin. And God can provide in that situation miraculously or providentially. He may just zap you with like a lightning bolt of grace, and all of a sudden you say, well, I don't want to do that thing anymore. Praise the Lord. That's fantastic. I don't think he does that for most people. And for most people, he says, look, I've provided you with my word. Provided you with my spirit that lives inside of you. I've provided you with a church family to walk beside you and help hold you accountable. I have provided everything you need to fight this sin. And you may be over here saying, yeah, but when are you going to take it away? And he may be saying, I've provided everything that you need to fight that sin and to be serious about it. He can provide miraculously or providentially. Last thought about testing. God is looking for trust, or you could say faith, He's looking for trust and obedience. Look what he says to the people at the end of Exodus 15. He says in verse 26, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, if you will trust me and you will listen to my word and you will do what I'm telling you to do, He says to the Hebrews, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And I think the idea that God is saying to them is, do you remember what the people are are thinking and what they continually say? The Lord just brought us out here to kill us. It would be better to be in Egypt because at least they had graves in Egypt. If we're going to die, we could at least be in a place where we could be buried. And God says this to them right here because he's saying to them, I'm not out to destroy you. I'm for you and I'm with you. My presence is leading you every step along the way. I am not here to crush you or destroy you or to make you miserable. I may test you, but I'll provide. I'm not going to do to you what I did to the Egyptians. If you will listen and if you'll trust and if you'll obey. And the reality is you and I can sit in this nice comfortable room on a nice Sunday in January, and we can read this story about the Hebrews, and we can say to ourselves, what a bunch of losers. What, what was the matter with these people? And the reality is we are these people. We are these people. We grumble, and we don't trust, and we don't obey, And we fall so short of what God calls his people to be and do and think and feel. It's not even funny. And there's hope in this passage driving us forward saying, look, Moses was the leader, but Moses was not the guy they needed. They needed somebody better to lead them. They need somebody that not only can give them a set of commandments or throw logs in the water, They need somebody that can change their heart. 
And ultimately, when you read this story, I hope it drives you forward to Jesus. And we'll end with this thought. Jesus passed the test so that we could worship in spirit and truth. He passed the test. Driven out into the wilderness, right on the heels of his baptism. Tempted, tested for 40 days. And he passed the test. It wasn't some big miracle that helped him get through it. It was the Word of God that helped him get through it. God provided everything that he needed. And because he passed the test, and because he lived a life of perfect and complete righteousness, he was able to die as a sinless substitutionary sacrifice. Remember we talked about that in the Passover. They need a sinless substitutionary sacrifice. He passes the test, and he's able to offer himself as that sacrifice. Sinless and righteous. And not only is he able to take our sin and pay for it at the cross, but he's able, when we trust in him, to give us the gift of his righteousness. So that not only is our sin taken away, but that we receive this gift of perfect righteousness. Look, when you get that, when you understand who God is as the holy God and who you and I are as sinful people and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, worship will be a natural response in this room and out of this room. I'll end from a quote from a Bible commentator I like. His name is Philip Riken, and he's got a commentary on the book of Exodus. This is what he says. Whenever God does something great, he deserves to be praised. That's pretty simple. I like simple. I like basic, to the point, put it on the level I can get it. Whenever God does something great, he deserves to be praised. And this story reminds us, God did something great for his people in saving them from Egypt. It was amazing. But he did something even greater in saving his people from sin. And when God does something great, he deserves to be praised. I want you to bow and let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for what you have done to save us and to make us your own. Father, we stop and we just acknowledge how prone we are to grumble. How hard it is for us to connect who you are and what you've done in the past to what you've promised to do in the future. Father, how prone we are. We confess that we are prone to treat worship as an event rather than treat it as something that ought to be true of our lives every second of every minute of every day. Father, we see in ourselves an inability to be faithful to you. And Father, we rejoice and we praise you and we worship you that you have done for us through your Son everything that needed to be done for us to enjoy a relationship with you. Father, and because of who you are and because of what you've done, you and you alone are worthy of our worship. So as we sing one last song, as we reflect on your word, we pray that you would receive our worship and we pray that you would give us hearts, hearts that are united in devotion to you. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.